Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I am Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Rongbin Han, a professor of international affairs at the University of Georgia and author of the recently published Contesting Cyberspace in China, Online Expression and Authoritarian Resilience. Dr. Han, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I'm truly honored. It's my pleasure. When you were a first-year college student in Beijing in 1999, almost 20 years ago, there was no internet access on the Changping campus. What was that like, and how did things change once you moved to the main campus in Haidian? What is the situation today for Chinese college students and the internet? Okay, first of all, my experience and fellow Peking University um, students at my year were a little bit different from a lot of common or average um, um, students, college students in China for two reasons. One, it's Peking University. Second of all, we were in Changping campus. And Changping campus is a separate island, isolated from the outside world, basically. It's literally in kind of the middle of nowhere. It's orchard, um, kind of fruit trees cornfields and everything outside. And we don't really have modern technology there. We don't really have phones in our dorms. There's one phone actually located at the first floor of our dorm. And whenever somebody receives a call and um, uh, the receptionist in that room would kind of shout out in a loudspeaker, so we would rush downstairs to pick up the phone. So we don't really have internet, um, but internet was starting getting root uh, in China um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So when we get to the main campus, it was really kind of the fresh new world for us. And what was particularly striking for us, it's because one of the pretty much um, uh, uh, kind of um, forgotten event today, but was pretty... Um, nice studied by a number of scholars um, um, uh, was an event, a tragic event. Um, one of our fellow students in Tsangping got killed, murdered actually, because of um, the long distance and it's kind of pretty rural, wild area. Um, we still don't know. I, I still don't know what happened to her. Um, but basically, rumors or some sources I got say he was raped and then killed. Um, so that was the, one of the reasons why Tsangping campus st- stopped to be a campus for freshmen uh, of Peking University. Mm-hmm. Some majors, not all majors, um, um, ever since we left. And that's one of the reasons actually kind of started my, uh, that spurred me to start this project is because when that event happened, we protested on Tsangping. Um, nothing was heard from us because we were isolated. Nobody heard us, mm-hmm. heard our voices, and it was very easy for the authorities or the university basically to put us down. And there was simultaneously another protest on the main campus, which received much, much, much more attention um, from everywhere. And that was kind of because of the internet. 
So that was one of the reasons kind of I started to be very interested in the internet because it's powerful in certain ways. Mm -hmm. You mentioned early on in the book the potential for online expression to, quote, bring about democracy. The reality is that most people in China and elsewhere go online to shop, to play games, and to chat with friends and family. Why do you think that there is the potential to bring about democracy through the internet? So, there has been a literature in political science about the relationship between authoritarianism and information. The old belief was that um, authoritarianism is inherently incompatible with free flow of information, and internet is bringing about that free flow of information. And considering that uh, the before the internet age, authoritarian regimes have complete monopoly over mass media. And that's very crucial for the survival and resilience of authoritarian regimes. So when that monopoly is broken by the internet, it's natural for us to expect that, uh, you know, now people are getting more leverage and uh, is empowered in certain ways. Plus, internet helps to spread certain types of information, particularly liberal, democratic values, ideas, beliefs. Um, people believe that or expect, speculate that once those information are available to people in an authoritarian setting, they would be naturally act up and started to actually uh, demand for more. And that's actually substantiated by empirical observations to a large extent. We can see um, Arab Spring countries, what happened there is facilitated by the internet. But at the same time, we don't see a lot of the changes in other authoritarian regimes. So that's the puzzle I wanted to explain. I also think that we've seen, since you did your field work, mm -hmm. some considerable evidence of illiberal and anti-democratic tendencies of the Internet. I'm right. thinking of the Rohingya in mm -hmm. Burma slash Myanmar, or very recently the... Um, very ugly attacks on low-caste Indians stimulated by Facebook mm -hmm. and other internet platforms. Right. So it's certainly not always liberal, liberalizing and democratizing. Which I totally agree. And actually, International Journal of Communication recently published an issue, including one article from me, but... Uh, 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 several articles from a number of scholars discussing the uncivil aspects of the internet. Mm -hmm. So totally agree with that. It happens everywhere, including in this country and, yeah. of course, in China. I, I was going to get back to this country. Yeah. Um, you quote Lawrence Lessig's four forms of internet control, law, coding, social norms, and the market. Could you talk about how these operate in China? Okay, so control in, is per se a very contested concept and idea. But now increasingly we understand it in a very comprehensive way. So it's not just kind of beating people up 
and gel people, right? So for thinking about control, defining control in a broad way, we look at strong authoritarian regimes, they have a lot of resources or a rich toolkit that's available to them. So they enact the law. If you look at the internet in China, you see there are a lot of laws regulating what you can say online and what you cannot. And a lot of the kind of the government suppression actions are legal, technically legal, because laws say they can do it. Um, so there's a whole set of laws and regulations, policies that's stipulated by the government that are actually kind of helping the government to control the internet. Um, and there are a lot of kind of other um, aspects in terms of coding, for instance. Um, this is primarily through the intermediary actors or service providers. So the government don't really know well how to programming things, uh, how to program things, and they don't know how to code. But the experts are under their control. So to a certain extent, you can see all those service providers voluntarily or involuntarily are subject to control to the, to the state. They add to their system the codes about censoring stuff, uh, about kind of, you know, um, 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 uh, including in their, in their system the codes that helps the government to achieve the censorship goals. And they also actually hire a lot of people to do it. Um, my book is a lot about kind of social norms control. When there are people who question um, the regime critics' intention and capacity in terms of criticizing the government. So it's not just kind of say when, as you just mentioned earlier, it's not just that, um, you know, free information is there, people are naturally becoming more democratic and liberal. They are competing. And there are, as kind of uh, Johan Lagquist said in his 2010 book, there is enormous competition between different groups of uh, of people, even though he was primarily saying it's a party state versus the subaltern use. Um, I kind of, you know, make that seem more complicated because it's not just the state. There are a lot of people for various reasons, including nationalistic uh, reasons that are actually helping the, the kind of the, the state who control um, indirectly sometimes. Um, yeah, did I miss anything here or? The market. The market. Of course, this is actually the reason I didn't actually mention it or skipped it. It's because it's connected to the service providers. Uh -huh. You probably have heard a lot about how the Chinese government forced those service providers to um, censor for right. them. Yeah. Actually, the the function uh, of censorship system depends heavily on the cooperation, even though sometimes involuntary, um, involuntary a corporation of those uh, companies. Those companies have to survive, so they have to comply. That's why Jingri Toutiao or Weibo have to listen to the party whenever they want to censor anything. That's why they are hiring thousands of special kind of, you know, censorship officers mm -hmm. there on behalf of the state. Because for them, they don't really have such a huge need of censorship. Um, so market is actually and, and actually, that's speaking to kind of what um, foreign companies, their role there, right? Google withdraw from China in 2010. Right. If they want to get back, the Chinese government is already setting a set of, you know, uh, uh, standards there. Right. You come, yes, meet our standards. One of them being, you know, you have to store all your data inside China. Right.
quite a number of people are familiar with the 50 cent army mm-hmm. but don't know about the volunteer 50 cent army right what is the latter and how does it function okay so the voluntary 50 cent army is different from the 50 cent army because the 50 cent army is essentially state sponsored trolls the voluntary 50 cent army are a group of people online who defend the party line um but are not state trolls. So um, to be more accurate, they are not really sometimes not trying to defend the party, but they are attacking the regime critics. So they are sometimes not on the side of the party, but they are definitely on the other side of the regime critics. So the kind of the net effect is that they cancel off the voices of the regime critics and rebuttal, kind of their rebuttal actually construct a pro-regime discourse that helps the regime indirectly or maybe not in kind of their intended purpose, but the function is there. Are Um, they really voluntary? Yes, that's a point actually I'm going to explain in the talk. It's like there are a few things that uh, uh, convinces me that they're voluntary. First of all, it's kind of the language codes they use are very different from state tropes. Uh, state shows are there to fulfill assignments. And they're so very they're, obvious. And they're not motivated to do a good job. So that's why they're very obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the places they're active are also very different. They're not very active on the kind of the super big platforms where you think the 50 cent army would be there because they're trying to either, say, distract people or engage people. Um, currently, generally, scholars believe, including myself, believe that they're not actually engaging people, which is kind of also surprising, the 50 cent army. Um, so they're relatively concentrated on small-scale, relatively isolated platforms. It seems they are, uh, most of the time they are not that interested in changing other people's minds a lot of the times. They're not trying to engage citizens to defuse certain kind of governance crisis that would hurt the party. And sometimes they are critical towards the government. Hmm. Um, they hate the propaganda department, for instance. They think the propaganda department is uh, incompetent and corrupt, which is pretty true, especially considering Lu Wei, right, who just got removed. Right. Um, and also, they call the former premier Wen Jiabao the best actor, just like the dissidents. So they are not really kind of acting like a lot of those state-sponsored trolls at the same uh, kind of a lot of the times. And also the last reason, which is kind of most convincing to me, is that I know some of them pretty well through field work and networks and everything. I'm pretty sure that they are not state agents. Um, but they show that tendency. And I think it makes sense because to a large extent, their discourse echoes the nationalist discourse in China. So they are a little bit more critical than the nationalists, but they, they kind of share some of the beliefs with them. So it's not just kind of, you know, they come out of blue that completely surprises us and uh, their behavior totally illogical because a lot of times state sponsors shows their actions are illogical. Hmm doesn't make sense. Um, so that's why I believe they are spontaneous. Mm-hmm. We're running out of time, but I want to ask you one more question. You suggest in the book that in some ways 
censorship is not terribly effective, mm-hmm. both because there are ways around it mm-hmm. and because it sometimes backfires because people know mm-hmm. what the reality is. Right. There is currently a very obvious area of censorship that seems quite effective, and that is around what's going on in Xinjiang. For quite some time, it seemed that mm-hmm. very few people in China, but outside of Xinjiang, knew that anything that was going on there. Right. It was only after the international outcry, news organizations, the UN, NGOs, they began reporting on the detention of hundreds of thousands or maybe a million Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Muslim minorities Mm -hmm. in the so-called re-education camps. Then the central authorities acknowledged something. But the censorship has certainly continued. How does this fit into your understanding of Chinese cyberspace censorship and information accessibility? That's a very challenging question in a way. But, okay, if you, under, if you try to assess the effectiveness of censorship, there are a number of aspects or perspectives you can look at. One is the state's intention and capacity how strongly they want to censor something. And that's associated with the capacity, you know, how much resources they allocate to censor particular topics. So there are definitely certain taboo topics that are much, much more censored than a lot of other uh, topics. For instance, about Tibetan independent movement, Uyghur problems, and also the um, Tiananmen Square movement. And sometimes people know it's taboo, so they don't even try to touch it, right? So that's kind of, you know, self-censorship also kicks in here. Um, The other side is really how strongly citizens are motivated to really overcome the censorship. Um, Molly Roberts, who published a book roughly at the same time of uh, mine, suggests that uh, the vast majority of the um, population are rationally ignorant, the most motivated citizens are always able to access information if they want. I agree with that um, argument. So to a large extent, a lot of the times the topics we're talking about are not really the topics that people want it to access. I mean, if you talk to every Chinese asking about 1989 Tiananmen Square movement, the majority of them probably would say they are not interested for some reason, Mm -hmm. right? we, we we put those reasons aside, but they probably are not that motivated to try to circumvent censorship around that topic. Um, about Xinjiang, I think that's the same thing happening because vast majority of the Chinese are Han Chinese. They don't really care about Xinjiang in the first place. Second of all, if they care about Xinjiang, they probably would side with the government rather than those who are fighting for independence because Han Chinese would say, yes, unification of the nation, right? And I literally observe those forums and uh, um, people online discussing about what's happening there. Once they learned about what's happening there, um, their reaction is very interesting. 
unlike kind of what is happening here, the Western media and kind of people here basically criticizing what the government is doing. They actually said, okay, CNN criticizes what uh, the party is doing in Xinjiang that basically suggests the party is doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So to what extent they are motivated to overcome censorship, to access information, to learn about everything? Not really motivated. Mm -hmm. So in this regard, it's not kind of very surprising to see these topics got relatively easily silenced in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the tricky part. That's very interesting. Um, one could argue that a million people in Xinjiang are not talking about independence. They're talking about right. their own religion. Um, I totally agree. But if you look into Chinese cyberspace, again, first of all, most of the people, the majority of people are not that into politics. Right. Second of all, those who are into politics, I would say, I would bet the majority of them are actually kind of more on the nationalist side on this very issue, partly because of indoctrination or partly because they have kind of, you know, they don't like Islam. Right. Which is, you know. That's a whole different topic. It is. It is. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much.